0: Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript.
1: Hey, happy Easter. Glad that you are here, whether you're in Cinecourt East or Cinecourt West, up in the loft at the Woodlands Campus online. However, it is that you're here, we're really glad. And wherever you are in your faith journey as well. Some of you are just starting out. Some of you have been at it a long time. Some of you in between. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. So, we're going to go to a passage in the New Testament today in the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Why don't you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24? And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Our ushers are coming down in all the rooms right now. They'll let you borrow one if you need one because you don't. Own one. You just keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, that's where we're going to go. And don't be afraid to use the table of contents either. In Luke uh, chapter 24 is where we're going to go. So if I knew anything when I was growing up, it was that when you go to a fair or carnival-like setting, you should never get sucked into those uh, games over there that have all the colorful prizes on the walls that'll just take all your money left and right. I remember my dad even taking me one time on the basketball shot, and he said, now look here, son. Do you see how that... That's not regulation height. That's probably 11 feet, 11 and a half feet. They got this net. It throws your dimensions all off. And, and see how the rim, it, see, they bang it in. They, they hammer it in. I don't even think you could probably fit a regulation ball through that hoop, right? So I stayed clear of all that nonsense until several years ago when I took my family to the rodeo. After traipsing what seemed like two or three miles, we come over the hill and my uh, older son, who was then about eight, his name's Wesley, he spotted the basketball shot. And he said, Dad, could, could I please go and shoot the You know I'm kind of good at shooting baskets. And I said, now, son, you know, the thing about it is they bring it all in. And you, you can't it. It doesn't work. And Suzanne whispers to me, just let them learn the hard way. Just go ahead. So we get up, and we stand in line, watching people lose their money, hand over fist. And finally, it's our turn, and I hand the money to the man Gives the ball to Wesley. Wesley bounces it a time or two and focuses and then heaves it up with all his might and swish right through the hoop, it went. Everybody started cheering. I was flabbergasted. Next thing I knew, I'm carrying this oversized bear as big as my boys around with me. And we had just gotten there, still had a whole day to go. So the next year we got back and we went up to the deal, and I figured I'm gonna let him go ahead and try this again because he needs to learn the hard way. You know, lightning doesn't strike twice, and you really can't do this, and that's just luck and beginner's luck and all that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> so we wait in line, we get up, and, and I pay the money, and he takes the ball and he shoots it, and shazam, right in, I'm carrying another one of these beasts around with me. And I said to Suzanne, we really should have come here last. Why do I keep doing this to myself? The third year, we go back, and by this point, my younger son, his name's William, he says, Dad, now nah, I'm old enough. I want to take a turn. And I said, You know, son, you've, you've heard me tell you. You, you, you know, you can't do this, and it doesn't work. They bang the rims, and you know. Like, and <clears throat> so we get in line, and we work our way up my buying the deal, and he gets the ball and shoots it right through, swish. Well, at this point, I was inclined to ask the guy, "Do you not bang the rims up anymore, like you're supposed to?" You know, and and so suffice it to say, over the years, uh, my doctrine on uh, this has had to change. What I used to think was absolutely impossible, I now know is possible because I've seen it happen three times with my own. I think that's something of what was happening that very first Easter Sunday morning. Several days after Christ had been uh, gruesomely crucified on the cross, uh, dead, buried, a few people had gone off to the tomb, had come running back and saying things like, He's alive, we talked to him, we saw an angel. All this kind of stuff was, was, I'm sure the buzz on the street was starting to get cranked up and people were getting excited, but there was one guy, he was skeptical to the end. He was like, nah, I know what happens when you die, you stay dead, you don't come back when you're dead. His name was Cleo. I picture Cleo just sort of packing his bags up to go on home from Jerusalem. Um, to his little village called Emmaus, even as he was listening to the people talking about that. Bible says he was uh, accompanied by another person. We don't know who that person was. Some think maybe it was Luke who writes this account that we're going to read because there's a lot of detail. Maybe he was the person. He's like, I, I'm actually just being humble, not re- writing my name in there. Some people think, no, maybe it was Cleo's wife, Mrs. Cleopas. Maybe it was she, as they walked along, it was the two of them. We don't know exactly who it was, but it doesn't really matter. What we know is as they they were walking, they were dejected, they were sad, they were grieving, they were hopeless. All those things you feel at the end. And they were especially... Uh, discombobulated because they'd been following this guy now for three years and they'd thought he's the redeemer, he's the savior he's the Messiah and by that what the Jewish people thought is he's going to overthrow the Roman government he's going to set us free, he's going to liberate us from this Roman oppression and now they'd watched him die which meant he must have been a fraud after all They're walking along the road to Emmaus and something happened. They would have to change their thinking because they were going to see something with their own eyes. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 14. It says, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God, and all the people and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. But they didn't find his body. They came back and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our other companions went to the tomb. And they found it just as a woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter to his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as, he was, as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? And they got up and they returned. It was to Jerusalem. And there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. And they saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I love how Jesus just steps up alongside these two, just walks with them, helping them, listening to them as they're processing aloud. He didn't even get mad when Cleo says, are you not the only one who understands what's good? Do you, how are you so out of it? They just can't recognize his resurrected, but his resurrection body yet. Which incidentally, I'll talk some about the resurrection body on the postscript if you want to go a little further with that. Here in our time, what I want to do is, I want to notice three things and point out three things to us that took place in this account that opened up hope for these two on that very first Easter, because I believe the Lord would like to open up hope to us and to many of us using those three things even today. Let's look at them first first thing he did is he opened up their minds to the truth after listening for a while jesus basically basically says you clueless people don't you remember what the scriptures said about your Savior? And knowing they still had about a two-hour walk to get to Emmaus, Jesus holds forth and starts doing Bible study with them right there. That must have been interesting. We don't know what verses that he took them to in what we call the Old Testament. But I have to imagine he went to verses like Isaiah 53 or Deuteronomy 18, 16, or Psalm 18 or, or, or Psalm 16 or 22. Verses that talked about how the Messiah was going to be a suffering servant. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. Hands and feet pierced. Hanged on a tree. Taken down before sunset. Abandoned to the grave. Verses that had been written hundreds of years earlier. But I bet he also asked them somewhere along the way. But didn't that Messiah say something to you all about rising On the third day? I have to think, he surely told them that. Now, the question is, why don't you suppose he just revealed himself to them right off? Why didn't you just help them to see instantly who he was? I have to think it was because he wanted their faith to be built on something more than just emotionalism. Not that there's anything wrong with emotions. Emotions are great, but emotions aren't enough to sustain us through the roughest passages of life and certainly not through death. If it's going to survive skepticism and, and rough circumstances... Our hope has to be built on solid biblical and intellectual foundation. Recently, Suzanne and I went on our date night to see Anticos to see a film that's out right now. It's, it's really very good. It's called The Case for Christ. It's a true story about a defiant, beer guzzling, famous journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he was a skeptic and an atheist and proud of it. And his skepticism was rooted in the certainty that there was no intellectual foundation whatsoever for the Christian faith. And one thing and another led him to start doing some investigating about this, to do some writing on it himself in which he would interview renowned psychologists and medical doctors and historians and other skeptics along the way because he was just certain that he could deliver the kill shot to Christianity if he could puncture the resurrection. Because he reasoned correctly. If you can gut the resurrection out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity left. That pretty much takes it away. Because if Jesus died on the cross, purportedly for people's sins, but then if he just stayed dead, all you've got is a dead man because a dead savior is no savior. Even the apostle Paul said as much in first Corinthians 15, but something got in this Chicago writer's mind. He, he just couldn't figure out. The thing he couldn't figure out is why Christ's followers responded the way they did not right after the crucifixion. You remember right at the crucifixion, they went scampering off into the dark of night like dogs with their tails between their legs. They were scared to death. They were hunkered down. They didn't want to be associated. We don't know him. You know, don't hurt us. Don't do that to us. You know, They're, they're terrified, and they're hiding out behind locked doors. That's not, what he was afraid. That's not what was curious to him. What was curious to him is what changed them that a couple of days they come marching back in with a different message. Now the message is kill us if you like, but he's alive. We've seen him, we know there's something else. What changed them? that way. That's what he just couldn't figure out the answer to. Of course, there's always been people who are willing to die for things that they believe to be true. Back in World War II, you had kamikaze pilots. Today you have Islamic terrorists and you've got our United States soldiers. There's always people who for whatever cause they believe to be the right cause and the true because there They've always been people throughout history who are willing to die for what they believe is true. But Who would ever die willingly for something? And painfully at that, many of these Christians were going to die by crucifixion. They'd get beheaded. They'd be fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. What got in his mind is this question. Who would willingly die for something they knew was untrue? that's what he couldn't shake and finally somebody says to that skeptical journalist you just don't want to see the truth it's right there in front of your nose and i've known some people like that typically I think it's, it's easier for some to just say, you know what, I'm an intellectual, I'm a thinking kind of person. And there, now that we have that established, let the record show, I'm not going to think about this one, about Jesus and Christianity and faith and all that stuff, rather than choosing to go ahead and actively engage their minds in a pursuit of truth. And then there's another thing I think other people's minds are closed to Christ, not so much for the intellectual reasons, but they've had experiences that really tarnish them. Suzanne and I, we, uh, we lead a small group each week for uh, parents of our kids' sports team teams. And, um, and w- it's a really interesting group, and we're kind of taking a journey together, learning more about our faith and so. And one of the guys in the group whom I'll call Mark, he said something interesting the other evening. He he said, you know, I, and Mark would be the first to say, I'm not really much of a God, Jesus, church, Bible kind of, you know, guy, right? And he said, you know, but when I was growing up, we we went to church. We went to church all the time. As a matter of fact, I, I was even an acolyte. Really? I didn't know that. He said, yeah. He said, but you know, something happened along the way. I, I was close enough in that I saw what was going on with some of those leaders. I saw who they really were and the hypocrisy with which they were living. I could tell you stories about it. They yelled at me and called terrible names to me. And, 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 and somewhere along the way, it just kind of snapped inside of me. And I just said, you know what? If this is what being a Christian is about, then I don't have a dang thing to do with it. And I tell you Mark's story because I just have a sneaking suspicion that there's any number of people here today and you've perhaps had the very same sort of experience. My plea to you would be this. Open your mind to the possibility that maybe you never did read re- meet the real Jesus, but maybe you just met some bad replicas along the way. So Jesus comes along and the first thing that's going to be opened up is is their minds. Second opening that we see in this passage, they're going to open up their home to Jesus. They've been walking along this long road and finally they get there and Jesus acts like, I'm just going to go on. And they're like, no, 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 really. No, I'm going, no, really. It's like it's getting dark. It's not safe. You know, you need to come on. Stay with us. You know, you're giving us a good Bible study anyhow. And so Some ask, well, do you think Jesus, if they hadn't have said that, do you think Jesus would have kept on going? I think the answer is absolutely. Of course he would. You know why? Because Jesus always waits for us to open up the door to him. Here again, I think many people have a mistaken understanding about the Lord. They, they kind of picture him more like the guards on that airplane that we've seen on the footage of the news this past week who are just looking for an opportunity to storm on, grab you by the wrist, drag you down, throw you overboard. And though there are some passages in the Bible that would give us an indication of that, that would never happen prior to many opportunities being given to an individual to open up their heart first to the Lord, to say, I, I actually want you to come in and stay with me. Remember what Jesus said in, in uh, Revelation 3 to those Christians in Laodicea. He says, here I am, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and, um, and, they'll, and they with me. And, and so <clears throat> um, maybe the question that you need to be asking yourself is not, Will he ever let me in, but will I let him in? Maybe you need to flip it around, you know? Like my friend Rob Price did. Some years ago, he tells the story of, of how, when he was a young man, um, he, he was the son of a pastor, but he really had no interest in spiritual things. He was pretty closed up to all that. And uh, definitely an academic sort of uh, himself. He went to Stanford for his undergrad work, and then he enrolled at Yale for his PhD. He says when he was at Yale, one cold, bitterly cold evening in Connecticut, he just decided to take a Bible and he began to read it. And to hear him tell the story, it's a very powerful experience. He was reading the Bible and he got to Matthew 22, the part where Jesus says, I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. And all of a sudden, it all came clear. And Rob swung open the door of his heart and Christ and all the possibilities that he brings to our life came rushing in. And he became a different person. And for years now has given himself to helping countless other young people, mentoring them, and serving in our community, particularly with the underprivileged, the long FM 1960. And he would tell you, before that day, he was headed in this direction, certain it couldn't get any better than this. But after that day, he went off in a different direction. And it's made all the difference in his life because the door of his heart came open to Jesus Christ that Day. So, you know why I think so many of us are slow to open up the door of our hearts to the transforming presence um, of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. I think it's because many of us, we think all that we need is a change of circumstances. I frankly, that's why many of us start coming to church in the first place. like, I don't like my circumstances. My marriage is bad. My Kids, a problem, a job, just got laid out. You know, I think I'll try church. Don't like my circumstances, right? And we feel kind of like a sufferer. Just, would you give me some relief? Not realizing our problems run a lot deeper than that. You just can't see it. But you need a total overhaul, total redemption from all your sins from your head down to your toes. See, we're just like the Cleopuses. They were bummed because Jesus hadn't redeemed Israel from the Romans the way that they thought he should be. Um, You know, they kind of treated him sort of like a seasoning salt. I think we'll just have a little savior here that'll redeem. That's what we want, Instead of realizing that Jesus is like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm the one who's in charge here. I've come to do a far more substantial and permanent thing in your soul, and your soul, and your soul, and your soul, and your soul. I've come to redeem you from all your sins. And so, what I want to notice at this point, he went into their home, and uh, look at verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. So here's the question. Who said the grace, the table blessing? Jesus did. And who distributed the food? Jesus did. And whose house were they in? Cleopas's and whoever's house. Now, I don't know about you, but the way I was brought up is that when you go into somebody else's house, you don't just like take over and say, well, now here's what we're going to do. And let me pass out the feed. You, you, you let the host take the lead, right? And you're polite. You say, thank you and please and no thank you, and all that kind of stuff. And, which begs the question, okay, wow. How is it that he comes in, sits down at the table and he kind of takes over? Now, I'll tell you why. Because if Jesus is Lord at all, he is Lord overall. And in this moment, they were starting to see it's true. I remember some years ago saying to uh, my friends called Don and Moira, I asked them, would you like to be in a, in a small group with me, a discipleship group? And I remember uh, them saying, Um, you know, Ken, we'd like to be in a group with you. Now, like, but let's be clear. We want to be like in a group with you. We're not so sure we really like want to be like disciples though of Jesus. And I think by that, what they meant is we don't want you to turn us into some sort of crazy nuthead who's badgering people on the street corners of intersections with their Bibles and say, roll down your windows and and that kind of thing. Because I I think that's really, so we don't really like want to become disciples. And I remember just, thinking as they said that, I'm like, okay, well then why don't we just be in a group together, you know, and and we'll just start there. And so we began to do some Bible study together every week for several years. And over the years, the doors of their heart have swung open to Jesus Christ and all of his Holy Spirit and the power of it has come in. And I'm telling you has transformed them and they have become followers of Jesus Christ which isn't eccentric and crazy and kooky and knocking on people's doors and windows in obnoxious sorts of ways. It's in a way that brings life and joy and a new perspective that you can experience when you're with them. But any number of times I've, I i can not number really how many times Don has said over the years, gosh, the only thing I, I, I just wish, in hindsight, Ken, is that you could have come into my life earlier and helped us to understand about Jesus and come into a relationship with him. So, Because I can't imagine how much better a, a vice president I would have been of my company or how much better a, a husband or how much better a dad I would have been if I'd had the, the the power of Jesus Christ living inside my heart all of those years. But see, back then... I didn't understand. I thought, man, I I got all there is. I'm successful. I got money coming in. I, I got all there is. He says, I look back and I just realized, wow, I was skimming along the surface. I just wish I could go back and have had my relationship that I have now with Jesus back then. To which I always remind him, yeah, but Don, you've got that relationship with him now. And you've become open to all the possibilities of what he wants to do inside of you. And I see the transformation and other people see the transformation in you because it's real and it's alive and it makes you a better Don than you ever were before. So I wonder, have you opened up your heart? Have you swung open the doors of your life to Jesus Christ? See, he's not a far off God, as many people tend to think. We have a savior who says, no, no, no. I want to journey closely with you. And he steps up alongside us. Even when we're not willing to see him yet, he starts taking that journey. In fact, I would be willing to say that I believe that he's been protecting and guiding you, leading you along in ways that you haven't even realized, to the end that the day will come. And then I'm hoping maybe that day is today when you would say to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I, I want to have a relationship with you. I'm opening up the door to you coming in through the power of your Holy Spirit living inside of me. Which leads to one more thing that God opened up in this passage on their way to Emmaus, their eyes were opened to a whole new outlook. Look at 24 31. It says then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Now, Why did they all of a sudden recognize him? Some have surmised, well, it must have been when he bowed his head to say the table blessing or the grace, you know, whatever you call it. When he began to pray, they're like, oh my gosh, we've heard somebody pray. Like we know this voice. We know that this sounds familiar. I don't think that was it though. I think their eyes were opened and they realized who he was when he broke the bread It says that that's when when the Bible says he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread because I believe that at that point where he took off the bread and he handed it to them, they saw something at that point with their own eyes that put goosebumps on their arms and made their heart start pounding quickly as they looked and they saw the nail scars in his hands and realized you are the risen Christ. And I have to imagine that he just grinned broadly as he saw them having this epiphany of realizing exactly who he was. But then it says he disappeared. And at that point, they jump up, they say, we got to get back to Jerusalem. Yeah, but it's dark. We don't care. Yeah, but there might be robbers. Not worried about it. What about wolves and other animals? No big deal. Because if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. We got to get back. We got to tell these people it's true. He really is alive and we have seen him. And this changes it all. That's how it is when you come into a real relationship with Jesus Christ. It begins to spill over and you want other people to come into that relationship as well. It's kind of like a parallel universe that you've stepped into. And once you've stepped into that, that world, you're like, but I, I want my loved ones, I want them to step into this and experience what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing myself. That's how it was with my friend Teresa. Several months ago, her family called and said, would you please go down to MD Anderson and and, and visit her? She's just gotten some bad news. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. So I remember that morning I went down to MD Anderson and into her room and sat down in the uh, chair beside her bed. And um, we exchanged pleasantries and talked a little bit about our families, which have overlapped here and there for for years now. And finally, then I said, well, so Teresa, um, I've... Heard the news, and uh, how are you feeling about that? She said, well, I, I feel scared. I said, yeah, you know, I can understand. Uh, just to be clear though, are you feel scared of like the feelings that come with the dying process? Or are you scared of what comes after it's over? She said, definitely the second part. I'm I'm scared of what comes after it. I said, you know why that is, Teresa? Because the Bible says that all of us have this intuitive sense of awareness that if there really is a God somewhere, that there must be then a standard that he has created that we should be able to hit, which... If he's out there, he's going to hold everybody accountable to if there's ever going to be justice in this crazy world of ours. And everybody has the awareness. I haven't hit that mark. I don't know exactly what it is. I just know I probably haven't hit it. I could tell it was resonating with her and making sense. I said, but Teresa, I've got good news. She said, what is it? I said, the good news is Teresa... That even though that is true, and even though the Bible does say all of us have fallen short of God's glory, we've all missed the mark, and there is a consequence for that. The good news is that our God, our great God, didn't just give up on his human creation, look down upon us and our sinfulness and, and all of our and evil and the things that we're doing to one another and the things that we're doing to the world. And and he didn't just wad us up like a little piece of paper and just throw us off, hurl us off into another part of the universe and say, I'll just start over and make another new world and try this all again and see if they can get it right. He didn't do that. Instead, he looked down with mercy and grace upon us. And he said, but I love them. And so I'm gonna fix their problem. They're never gonna fix the problem themselves. They can't. No matter how hard they try, they'll never be able to fix it. And it's at that point I said, Teresa, God said, I'm going to come into this world. The Bible says, taking the form of a man, flesh and blood, He sent his only son Jesus to come into this world to live in this world infected with sin but never to be infected by sin himself. So Jesus comes and he lives the life of sinless perfection that none of us could live. And then he dies the death of punishment that we deserve. He went to the cross as your substitute. And as my substitute, he said, I'll take the hit for your sins. He goes to the cross in our stead. And then as proof that it really took, that the transaction really went through, that he really was the Savior. God says, I'm going to raise him victoriously on the third day. And there's your proof. You need a receipt that it happened. There it is right there, the risen Christ. And so the question, Teresa, I said to you is, do you want to tether yourself to him? Because he says, If you're linked to me by faith, then you too will be raised to life. Would you like to have that assurance and know that peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? She said, I would, but how do you do that? I said, well, you know, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So why don't we just talk to him about it? right now. And we prayed and I remember when we said amen looking up at her and just seeing the most tranquil, peaceful sparkle in her eyes as she said two words to me. With all the tranquility in the world she looked at me and she said I believe. I said I can see that you do. Because she looked different than she did when I'd come in an hour earlier. Now, to be clear, nothing had changed about her circumstances we were still at Indy Anderson Hospital. She still had the bad news. She was still lying in that hospital bed, but everything about her was different. Why? Because this parallel universe, this kingdom of heaven, she had stepped in at that point. The interesting thing about it is several days later then, sh- I get a text saying from her family saying, Teresa would like you to come over and talk again. And so I went back over and, and this time she had loved ones who were there. And so we <laughs> talked a little while and we all sat down and, and she said, well, Pastor Ken, the reason I wanted you to come back over is because um, ever since you came and saw me the other day and you told me that whole thing about God and about Jesus and about the cross and about forgiveness, it had never been explained to me that way my whole life. And that just made all the sense in the world. And ever since you left, I have felt so peaceful. And I just wanted you to, would you just like tell that whole story again? Because I want them to hear it as well. And so in a roundabout way, she was doing exactly what the two in Emmaus were doing. They're like, we have got to get back. We got to tell this good news because this changes everything. And see what you have to realize, friends, we are not a people who are built upon some ushy, mushy kind of psycho babble, some sort of feelings that rise and fall. No, no, no. We're built upon an event that happened in history the day that our guy beat death and that changed everything. So my question is you to you is have you stepped into that world yet? Have you come to know him as your lord and as a savior of your life yet? Because I guarantee you, if you'll just say yes, opening your mind, opening the door of your heart to him and opening your eyes that you might see him, I can guarantee you this. Your circumstances, they may very well not change, but everything will be different. And so even though your finances, they may still take a devastating turn. And even though your marriage, it may still be on the rocks, even though you might not make such good grades and you may not even get admitted to the college that you really wanted. Even though your singleness may feel eternal, even though your child may rebel and break your heart, even though the lump, it may be cancer, even though your job may be terminated, though the world altogether may seem like we're headed for hell. You will have hope, hope for this life and for the next because Jesus, our Savior, is alive. And when you're in Christ, friends, you're not headed for a hopeless end. Now you're headed for endless hope. And that's what I want for you. Happy Easter. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the love that you have for us, the patience that you demonstrate to us, the ways that you walk with us, even when we're not quite ready to look at you or see you. You take that journey with us, and then the day comes and our eyes are open. And the door of our heart is open. Our minds are opened. And it really does change everything. My prayer, Lord, is that Every person hearing my voice right now would do that. If they've not done that already, that even right now in the quietness of this moment, that they'd just say, Yes, Jesus. Yes, I want you to come into my life. Yes, I want you to be my Savior. Won't you come in, forgive me of my sins? I need a total redemption, not just a little Band-Aid on my circumstances. I need a total change of heart. I need you to come in and do spring cleaning and overhaul my life. I, need, I want you to come in and transform me, Lord Jesus. And then some of you, you say, you know, I, I have prayed a prayer like that before, but I've gotten away from that. And today was good pastor king because i needed to be i just needed to kind of have a little front end alignment i need to get back to this because i know the truth and so even in this quiet moment perhaps if you're in that category that grouping of people why don't you just right now say uh, lord i i i'm back thank you for being patient with me and for gracefully leading me back now journey with me and lead me forth as i let you really be the leader and the lord of my life and others of you here, you say, you know, uh, this is definitely thought-provoking. I don't know that I'm quite ready to sort of step over a line or say I'm in, but I'm definitely open to exploring these possibilities. My encouragement to you would be just even now in the quietness of this moment, just pray, God, if you really are real, if you really are out there, would you give me some more confirmation of it? Build upon what I've heard even today. I pray, Lord, that you would help such people to, to go for some of the resources, the good literature, the books that are written, that thinking people have spent a lot of time plowing through, several of which are at our resource center even today. God wants you give them resources or put them in community where they can actually talk it out with some other people who've been on the journey a little bit longer. And so, Lord, my prayer is that nobody would leave here with a stagnant soul, maybe that's the way we came in, but that we all might leave with souls that are being resurrected by you, Jesus. Amen.
0: Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the Teacher of the Day. and welcome to Postscript. I'm Ann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Pastor Ken Warline, who just brought our Easter message, A Transformational Journey, a look at a passage from Luke 24. Welcome Pastor Ken. Thank you. Yes, okay, so this message about the transformational journey, we looked at when Jesus uh, appeared after the resurrection and mm-hmm. he walks along with the two travelers mm-hmm. and they begin to have their eyes opened and their hearts revealed and begin to see Jesus. And so we had quite a few questions come in around this. So I'm just going to start with them and we'll head into it. So one question that we got was, where do we get the word Easter?
1: Okay, that is a good question, but probably not going to come out of uh, biblical text. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the word Christmas. It's one of these words that has been incorporated into the faith along the way to describe an event that did happen in history that we're celebrating. But you can Google the word Easter and probably get uh, a dozen different etymologies. And so I would encourage the questioner to do a little reading about it, and it's kind of interesting, but move past the word to the event. and. That's the resurrection.
0: Okay, interesting. Didn't mm-hmm. know that. Uh, the other question that came in is, why do some Christians celebrate the Passover? Is it the Seder or the Seder?
1: Seder. Seder, the yeah. Passover
0: Seder, mm-hmm. and some do not.
1: Well, um, let me say this first. It's a meaningful thing for any Christian who chooses to do it. Um, it's kind of like taking a tour to the Holy Land, um, which once you go, you're like, wow, that has just enriched my faith all the more because now I know what it looks like. And when you read about Jesus went there, I know what that looks like. I've stood right there. And um, and so I think uh, the meaningfulness comes for that last supper mm-hmm. that we celebrate on Monday, Thursday, to go back and to sort of put our mind into the place of, okay, this is the, f- the the celebration that he was having with the disciples um, to go through that, uh, 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 especially with a messianic Jew mm-hmm. or a Christian or a fulfilled Jew or completed Jew um, who has been steeped in the traditionalism of Judaism, but also can incorporate the um, the it's almost clear as a bell, wow, how could you not see mm-hmm. this symbolize this and this symbolize yeah. this and as he goes through the meal um, so I recommend it
0: yeah um, yeah that's great. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Old Testament yeah. and uh, the question came around that says, uh, what scriptures were they studying at the time the two w- tribes?
1: travelers and Jesus. W- yeah. W- well, like I said, we, we, he doesn't give us the verses. Mm-hmm. I guided us to a few, uh, in Isaiah and Psalms, Deuteronomy, um, 18, which might have been the mm-hmm. scriptures that he was using. What we know is that the scriptures were at that point, just the old test, what we call the old Testament. That's all that there was. Um, cause the new Testament, this was happening. It hadn't been written yet. So it was, uh, it says, you know, he took them to the prophets and and the law and kind of guided them through. So uh, we have to imagine that he was pulling out some of those texts, like I tried to do, that would have very easily uh, served as signposts for them Mm -hmm. to say, oh, so that's what, okay, we were, we did see this come to fulfillment. and,
0: And so... Wouldn't you love to be part of that? Yeah, of course. That would be a good Bible study. I'm <laughs> part of that study. Yeah. Okay, so uh, talking about Cleopas, yeah. this question came in that said, wouldn't Cleopas have been Jesus' uncle? Based on John nineteen twenty five, that says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas makes the encounter even more miraculous since it was his family that didn't recognize him and invited him into their home. Sure.
1: Yeah. And that very well could have been. In fact, um, the late uh, pastor from the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, James Montgomery Boyce, is the one who uh, wrote a piece years ago that I found compelling. That's why I mentioned it that some think it was Cleopas's wife that was traveling along, and that's the reference. Some uh, say, but wait, 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 that's a different spelling. Well, yes, but scholars point out spellings that are different by a little squiggle or a little letter in English, that is an incidental or a secondary, uh, of secondary importance, not a, a critical factor. So it very well could have been family, which does make it all the more, it's like, wow. So the resurrection body, you couldn't uh, recognize. If it wasn't, uh, and that's a different Cleopas than this Cleopas, then, um, well, wow, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, that there he was.
0: Okay, um, so you you kind of teased us and mentioned a little bit in the sermon, uh, but the question came in that says, "Okay, we'll take the bait, we'll bite." Why couldn't they recognize Jesus' resurrected body until he broke the bread? The
1: bread, yeah. Well, this is an interesting thing. You see, in these appearances uh, in the resurrection, I think there's eleven of them in the New Testament. If you add them all up in the Gospels, um, it was a, a, it was predictable that people couldn't recognize him. Um, Mary goes to the tomb and uh, she's like, why have you taken him away? And and then he says, you know, Mary. And she's like, oh my gosh, whoa. And and so there's apparently some perfectedness that comes to the resurrection body um, that doesn't deprive it of The very real qualities that we are familiar with in a body, such as taking food. He was taking food. He was eating bread and and the fish with Peter on the beach and this sort of thing. So there's taking food and there's even a tangible. I mean, they were doubting Thomas said, I believe when I can touch. I want to feel, you know, and so it's it's a real deal. And yet he can pass through walls. Um, And the passage that we were in in Luke continues as they run back to Jerusalem and they get to the 11 and the others and they're there and they're saying he's alive. And then whoop Jesus appears there and comes through the locked doors. And they're like, whoa, you know, and and um, and he's telling them, no, I'm really here. And and so there is this quality to the resurrected body that makes it similar but different Different. and that's as much as the lord saw fit to let us see i guess to to give us sufficient assurance and hope for what lies before us um but to leave us with sufficient anticipation until we get there and experience it ourselves when we get our own resurrection body we are in christ
0: yeah we can maybe go through doors. I guess so. Um, Okay, so uh, back to uh, just some basic questions around the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since we we focused on that today, how do we know that God actually rose?
1: Yeah. Well, you you have... uh, um, Philosophers refer to a a mistake that is makeable and a mistake that is not a makeable mistake. If he had only appeared to two people, four people, one here, one there, and that's it, that might fall in the category of, uh, okay, maybe those people were just wishful thinking and that was a makeable mistake. But then you get to 1 Corinthians where it says, and then he appeared to 500 Okay, now that is a not a makeable mistake. That's an unmakeable mistake. Um, and so uh, what philosophers call reductio ad absurdum, that, that leads to an absurdity to, to say that these people just were all uh, having these thoughts going along mm-hmm. in their mind. And so um, I think our evidence comes through... These witnesses that attested to it and more importantly, then would go and die for it. Mm -hmm. Because remember, the big question um, that's raised in that film I mentioned, The Case for Christ, um, isn't why did they scamper off terrified? That makes total sense. But why did they come back and even say he's alive when it meant we're going to kill you for your faith? What? What? Thinking person chooses to die for what they know is not true. We just made it up. Pain has a way of flushing out the truth, and yet none of them came off the story. They're like, "Oh no no no, it's okay. You can kill us because for me to die uh, is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, and it's going to be just fine." And they would even bless the people who were going to kill them and, and forgive them and feed them food before they killed them. And you know, it's like, okay. You must have seen something that really was transformational.
0: So Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. Mm -hmm. And so when you say God died for our sins, what does this logically mean? That we no longer go to hell or that our sins don't matter?
1: Well, let's break. That's a good question. Let's break it down. Um, If the questioner is asking, like, we, humanity, every seven billion people or whatever, no longer go to hell, no, that's not what it means. Um, if the questioner is asking me, mm-hmm. I, well, that depends. Because scripture says he who has the father and she who has the father, uh, the son, has the father and has life. But... He who does not have the Son does not have life. And so the question that I would ask the questioner is, okay, let's back up and ask, first of all, do you have Christ? Because if you do, then the answer to your question is yes, your sins, past, present, and future, and that's the mystery of it, have been forgiven. Um, If you don't have Christ, then don't think about 7 billion people around the world. Let's get this dealt with first, what about your soul? Because that's the only soul that you can um, uh, control. Have you opened your soul up to the transforming power of Jesus Christ? Have you appropriated him into your life as your savior yet? And taken up his indwelling spirit inside of you yet? Because that's um, where we've got to start.
0: And so you talk about meeting Jesus and, letting him in. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to let him in? What changes like your outlook on life mm-hmm. or because you can get drunk and your outlook outlook changes. Sure. What what does it mean?
1: Or you get sleepy.
0: <laughs> and your outlook and, changes. And you get groggy
1: and irritable <laughs> and your outlook changes.
0: What what does it life? mean? Yeah. What are we letting in?
1: Yeah, what we're letting in is his presence through the power of his Holy Spirit, who says, I want to come in to you and fill you up with my power. And so that word in the New Testament that we translate dynamite, that dunamis that raised Christ from the dead, he says that same power can raise you to life. And that's what I want to bring into you through uh, my Holy Spirit coming in and filling you up. And so that's what we're letting in to Um, transform us. Now, to be certain, you can still get drunk and you can still be groggy and tired and irritable, Um, but there is something objectively different about the person who really has said, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life, to be Lord of my life, to transform me. That even in our uh, tiredest Moments we can access. Don't know that sometimes we'll choose to, but we can access and say, even in my fatigue, Lord, I need your supernatural strength to give me patience with mm. my spouse or with my children or with this irritable person at work and, and let your grace flow through me. One of the things I remember one of my heroes of the faith saying is, I just want to be, I want my body to be like a suit of clothing, for the Holy Spirit to live inside Mm. of. And I think that's a good word picture, just saying, Lord, I'm asking you now to come in and I'll just be the suit of clothing, or like the country song says, I'll let you take over the steering wheel, or any number of songs have been written, metaphors of the whole concept of letting Christ have control of our lives. But um, it's something that ultimately you can stand outside of, I would say to the questioner, and look from the outside in and wonder about, but then finally you have to decide, am I going to step into this? Mm -hmm. Because it's only in stepping in that you can experience like, oh, that's what you were talking about Mm -hmm. when a person steps into
0: that. So you made a statement. You said, if you got the resurrection Mm -hmm. out of Christianity, then you don't have much left. Sure. Why? Why must the resurrection completely define Christianity? So it separates it from other religions, uh, but why is resurrecting from death to spend a with God the most important thing? Shouldn't our primary importance be on bettering the world or treating other people as Jesus did? Uh, should we act like it's just merely a reward? Uh, Or because Jesus gave us this perfect example to love people, and if you love God, you'll love them. Why do the teachings have to hinge on the teacher rising from the dead? Sure.
1: Well, if you just want a religion with some platitudes, uh, you know, and some. You know, little pithy sayings like, you know, spring comes after winter and every cloud has a silver lining and and these sorts of things. Well, that's what you get if you take the resurrection out of Christianity. Um, All you'll get is just another moralistic religion. Um, Because in the final analysis, that's what every religion is. It's like you need to. Our religion says you got to pray facing this direction five times a day. This is how we do it. Get in line, okay? I'll get in line. You know, and, and um, or we believe in doing this. And if you don't do that, then you're not one of us. And it's all about what you do. Um, it's all about um, your uh, behavior and your um, your you know these actions that you're doing to stay in. Christianity is originating from a totally different place, a place where we're saying, no, 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 no. We're going to do some great things, and we're going to serve other people, yes, and we're going to care for the poor, yes, and we're going to push the darkness of the world back and help, uh, uh, you know, take care of our uh, nature and all this stuff that God's given to us, yes, but it's originating from an altogether different place than just every other religion lined up side by side. Ours is being uh, derived from this place of life, of resurrection, of newness, because of what happened on that first Easter, that our guy beat death. And that's what changes everything and then makes us be people who aren't saying, okay, I guess I better get up and go save the planet again another day and do some more good things. Why? Well, just because that's what you're supposed to do. No. To now, I have this transforming relationship with Jesus. I get to go into the world and change the world and help people and and better the world and these sorts of things. Why? Because I've got the source of life inside of me.
0: I think about these things that we do are heart and our flesh like without jesus inside of us it's hard to love people and sure. serve people and do the things we do and so with that yeah. source of life inside us mm-hmm. we're able to do these things yeah. and uh, we talked about today so much about your eyes being open and your heart being open and I just pray that many were today and many more will. So thank you for your message. Sure. It was great. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.